Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB AM 860. Uh, I'm thrilled to have someone in the studio with me today who is doing some incredible work in the Philadelphia area, and her name is Cheryl Axelrod. And Cheryl is president of the Axelrod Firm, which is a law firm um, here in Philadelphia. Welcome to the studio, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. I'm delighted to be here. I am, too. We, we had a nice conversation um, about a week ago uh, about all the work that you're doing, and uh, I'm excited to share that with the listeners. Um, the first thing I want to do, as I always do every week, is find out a little bit more about you and your background. And I understand that you did grow up uh, in Marion, which right. is right down the road from the studio. Um, and you were one of eight children. So talk about those years a little bit growing up um, close to the to the bottom of the of the rung, I guess. You were second to youngest out of eight children. That's right. Yeah. Um, that was actually great. Um, I adore my family. I have a younger brother. I have five older brothers and an older sister. She's the oldest. And then my parents. So my mother was 38 when she had me. Um, so my parents are about 10 years older than the parents of kids my age that grew up with me. Um, but there were a lot of benefits to that. I was very, very close with my family. I adored them. Um, it was a lot of fun to play with my brothers. It was nice to be the little girl. My mother had really wanted another daughter. Yeah, you know, she after had five, all those boys. Right, right. Five sons in a row. Right. Um, so, so that was really nice. Um, and my brothers, I, I'm, I'm very close with because I think they're really warm, kind, nice people. So it was a treat I had. And family of friends. And to this day, we are all very, very close. My sister works about 18 footsteps from my office. She's down the hall from me. I rent, my firm rents space from her law firm's building. Oh, she's an attorney as well. Right. Okay. Oh, that's great. Yeah. She's actually a big part of the reason I became a lawyer. Yeah. And I understand that, you know, your mom was a big influence in your life. Um, you talked a lot about your mom, um, and, and I read your bio, and she was, I, I would say, for her time, extremely independent and um, taught you a lot of lessons about kind of, you know, getting out there and being a professional and making your own way. Um, talk about some of the conversations that she had with you and, and her company that she had at a time when a lot of women did not own their own business. Yeah, my mother is without a doubt, and I'm not just saying that she's the most extraordinary person I've ever met in my life, and she may well be for the rest of my life. She, first of all, raised kids, eight kids, um, which itself is an extremely difficult thing. And I think that, you know, I talked about how I'm crazy about my siblings. I think they're all such good people. And to be able to raise eight kids to be good people, um, we're all so close that everybody lives within an hour of each other except one younger brother's in Connecticut, which is still very close by. I mean, that's extremely unusual. Um, so my mother, when I was in, it was either kindergarten or first grade. I think it was kindergarten. And my mo- my younger brother would then have been in nursery school. She started her own business, which was Mother's Natural Pet Foods. And I should say that before she started her own business, she was already teaching. So she... At the Head Start program. Right. She's taught at Head Start. And my younger brother and I, our first classmates were the kids in the Head Start program, primarily African-American kids, were our first school playmates. Um, And when my mother started her business, it's because I have two slow learning brothers. They were in special education in school. 
there were no special education classes when the older of the two was about to go to school. My mother had to lobby the school board to create special ed. And as you can imagine, even um, even though here in Lower Marion, people probably are going to be shocked to hear this because it's one of the best programs um, in the region for kids of all sorts with all sorts of special needs. Um, but it didn't exist at all. There were no special needs programs before my mother lobbied the school board. But the school board fought this extremely hard because, as you can imagine, having had no special education program and it being an extremely rare thing around the country, you had to find teachers that could actually teach the subject. You had to find the books. You had to find the, you had to literally have classrooms. You had to have desks. Um, they were really starting from scratch. It was a very big and expensive program. So they fought her very hard on this. So um, when my brothers were, um, the older one was about to graduate, there was no place for him to go. There, there were no um, areas where people like him could find jobs. And so older kids that were special ed um, literally were dependents and wards of their parents and of the state. And mm-hmm. my parents, um, they decided very early on that these boys were going to be independent. So before they graduated, my father sat down with the older of the two, and the older of the two is slower, the slower of the two, Kenny. Um, Kenny mentally is um, probably about like a fifth grader and maybe even a little slower than that. And he worked with Kenny um, where he would spend an entire summer, he spent an entire summer going through the driver's ed manual with him so that Kenny would learn how to drive. He had to pass that driver's ed manual. Kenny was a very good driver physically. The question was, could he pass the written test? Right. So he went sentence by sentence with Kenny, starting with the first one. He would Your get dad him to, did. My dad, yeah. get him to memorize it. Mm-hmm. Then the second sentence, then put them together, then the third, then the fourth. Um, Kenny studied really, really hard and ultimately passed the first time he, he took the test. But it, you know, it took an entire summer for him to prepare for it. Um, so when my mother started her business, it was part and parcel of this continuing effort to make sure that my brothers would be independent. Um, and not um, just be wards of the state and dependent on everyone. And to this day, um, Kenny and Howard, the younger of the two, both have jobs. They're hardworking. They're both married. Um, they both own the places that they live in. Um, Kenny has a uh, condo. Howard has a house. Um, and, you know, they, they've done incredibly well. That's really wonderful. You know, they're, they, they're living the best that they can do. They can. Yeah. Where did your, your mom get the courage to speak up like that at a time when, you know, those resources weren't available? It's actually amazing. And really, I guess the story goes back to her mother because her mother was a very bright and outspoken individual herself. But just going back to my mom for a second, the reason that I thought that she is the most extraordinary person I've ever met is because of all of these things that she has done, which have... Each one increased her confidence and her own self-esteem. So I think part of it is that you grow your own self-esteem by doing these things versus that you have to have them going in. She had a situation where she had these two slow-learning boys and she had six other kids. And maybe economically it wasn't going to be so easy to raise eight kids. And she's looking at um, her other kids, like myself, my sister, I have a, uh, the sister I mentioned is an attorney. I have a brother who's a physician. I have uh, two brothers who are engineers. I'm sure she was looking ahead and thinking, how am I going to take care of colleges and, and the things that these kids need and also take care of these slow learning boys? You know, I also need to think of a solution. So it was good for everyone. And it gave my brothers a ton of self-esteem to have these jobs. 
they could do the fifth grade math that was required at the store. So when somebody would come to them with five 20-pound bags of dog food, they could multiply you know, whatever the price of the bag was times five. They could add in, they could multiply the point, what is it, 06 or 07 cents tax, and they could do that. And um, actually, they they would always be right. It was amazing that Kenny and Howard and all, all of the Axaraz, we were always very strong in math, and we would double-check our math. So um, they did a great job with that. And it also gave them a lot of social skills. They spent um, a lot of time interacting with people because people would come in the store. And so it was just terrific for them and mm-hmm. really, you know, made them come into their own. Yeah. Um, and the store doesn't exist anymore, and each of them have their own jobs. And they've done very, very well, as I've said. That was such a good point that you made that really out of necessity, um, your mom did what she did, and she gained this. We talk a lot about self-esteem on this show, and um, often, you know, I never thought about it from the point of, you know, out of, out of necessity, you do something, and you accomplish something, and then you get the self-esteem as opposed to you need it first to, to do anything. Yeah. It probably can go, you know, both ways. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I think that with women in particular, when it comes to their children, um, they are going to find a way, right, right. to do mm-hmm. what and accomplish what needs to be done for their kids. And I very much admire my mother for what she did. I remember sitting at the kitchen table. So I'm the second youngest, Neil me, Howard, Michael, Kenny, 6, 8, 10. I'm a, yeah, 6, 8, 10. So Kenny's 10 years older than I am. So when Kenny would have gone to high school, what's that, like age 13, I would have been about three. Um, so I was very, very young. But I do remember, this is crazy to think about, but I remember her practicing the speech. She must have done it for a long time, what she was going to say to the school board. Mm-hmm. And maybe what I remember is a later speech because she had to go back multiple times. Um, the first big speech was to get Kenny admitted into the special ed program, to create a special ed program so that um, that they would start this thing so he could go to high school. Because right. you have to imagine, by the way, that Kenny had all these older siblings if he didn't go to high school, he'd be watching all his siblings take the bus every day, go to school every day, make friends every day, go to their sports classes. I mean, it would have been an absolute nightmare and extremely depressing for right. him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she that's part of the big reality, too, that she was facing. I mean, this this just wasn't a tenable situation in a family of eight kids. Um, so she, she kind of had to do this. Um, but she had to fight multiple times because when Kenny first went to take the school bus the first day, she got a very unexpected... Um, situation, which was that the school bus came for him and it was a handicap accessible bus when Kenny and Howard have no physical needs that Mm -hmm. are different than a new one. They're Mm -hmm. physically like everyone else. They're mentally different. So um, Kenny was in the first class of special ed. He was already going to have a lot of problems with the kids in school teasing him Mm -hmm. and making fun of special ed. And, you know, to this day, the word retard is um, somehow PC to other people, it is extremely painful to me and my family. And I try to raise awareness about that mm-hmm. and say that, you know, no, the retard, the word retard is very offensive. Um, and it's not used the way it's, it's meant if you look it up in a dictionary. And, you know, I'd really stick to the word slow learner because it doesn't have those kind of connotations. But when you're already in that first class and you're going to get teased, to show up then on a handicap accessible bus is like to give a giant red flag to every kid in school that you are weird. And you different. are different. That's right. And and at um, that age, they just all want to be on an equal, you know, playing field. That's right. Yeah. And so um, Kenny faced a lot of discrimination when he started his classes. So my mom had to fight the school board to create integrated buses. This is very much like the story of the African-American community, community um, to fight for integrated busing. 
Um, Kenny was also segregated in his gym classes. And I said, he's no physically different than anyone mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. So my mother fought the school board to integrate the gym classes. And then at the end, you know, after all this work and Kenny's like about to graduate, the older of the two, she got a letter in the mail saying that um, your son will not be going to graduation. He will not graduate and not receive, you know, get the cap and gown and the diploma. And she had to fight the school board again. Um, and I remember part of that speech. I mean, I can almost quote it something about, um, you know, what do you fear? What colleges and universities do you think my boys are going to get into that they're going to take your children's spots? How dare you deny them this? You are basically saying to them that all the work that they did for the last four years isn't worth anything. Um, and they're going to, again, in a family of eight, they're going to see all their older siblings go through these graduation ceremonies. There's a reason we have them. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody that um, meets the scholastic requirements for graduation can graduate, right? And we don't just get a letter saying that, hey, thank you very much or congratulations, you graduated. We have a whole ceremony. Right. And there's a reason because it makes us really feel good about what we've done. And yes, it shows acknowledgement. That's right. It's yeah. the acknowledgement yeah. of of this and it's a ceremony and you bring your family and your the people that you love there to see you and celebrate your day. So this was a really what important What was their thing. reason behind if they had done all the work, what was the reason behind they're not going to be I think it was fear and I think my mother hit the heart of it that they were afraid that suddenly if they give these boys diplomas that maybe they'll get into schools and colleges and and that just wasn't going to happen. These mm-hmm. boys are are slow learning. They um, you know, they they can't go to Temple University and, and graduate a college. Um, but, to, you know, to deny them this was very cruel. So um, I'm very proud of her for having fought that battle, too, yeah. and won it. Yeah, good. Really, um, that's wonderful. And we've come a long way since then. Yes. A really long way. Yes, as I said, Lower Marion should be commended because yeah. right now they have a great program. Yeah. Now tell me about your dad. What did your dad do? Um, he was amazing too. Um, my dad passed away in May, so this is hard um, to talk about, but, um, my dad is a huge, uh, hero of mine. Um, principally I think because, well, so many things, but one of them is as a woman, and I look through so many things that through this lens now, through, through all the work I've done, um, about equality, my dad treated me as an equal. Um, both my parents did. And when I say that, I want to say in two respects, first, although I was a child when I was young, they treated me as a um, an adult, somebody whose opinions equally value equally mattered. So when we had discussions, I never heard the words "because I'm your dad" or "because I said so." Because I said so. Never, mm-hmm. never, never, never. Um, there was always a conversation, and if I were was able to prove my points, then I was going to win that discussion, and if not, I wouldn't. So. I remember very clearly, for instance, this is how my parents treated me. It's also how they treated um, their nephew, their grandkids. My nephew, Kevin, when he was a little boy, wanted a pool party. And my mother talked to him, and he was all upset because his parents weren't going to give him a pool party. And so my mother said to him, well, what are you going to do to earn that pool party? And he's like, what do you mean, Grandma? She said, what well, does that word mean? Right? <laughs> earn? <laughs> right? Um, and she said, well, Kevin, you know, your bedroom is a mess. And by the way, Kevin represents one of my nephews. It, it's not necessarily Kevin and his parents. You know, I've got yeah. 13 nephews and nieces, but it's, it's a story to be representative of this kind of thing. So she said, you know, your room is a mess. What if you told your parents you would keep it clean, put everything away for three months? Do you think then maybe they would give you the pool party in exchange? And that's what he did. And he got his pool party. 
So, you know, this kind of thing where they were treating us like adults and they were teaching us negotiation skills, which are critical in life in so many things, um, was the way that they treated me. And going back to my father, there was the treatment of me as an equal, as not um, someone who should fear authority, but as someone who was equal to anyone who had authority over me. And he also treated me as an equal as a woman as opposed to a boy. I never, ever got the message that I couldn't achieve anything I wanted to. On the contrary, um, I, my, both of my parents made me believe I could do anything I wanted to do, be anything I wanted to be, and there were clear expectations of me. Mm-hmm. I knew before going to college that they were expecting I would go to grad school, and I expected that of myself, yeah. that I would be some kind of professional. Yeah. I, you know, I, I tend to see that, and I don't know if I'm right or wrong, a lot in the Jewish community. Um, I have, you know, friends, Jewish friends, that it seemed to me that parents always spoke to the children in an intellectual way different from some of the other families I knew. Um, can you speak to that? Yeah, I think that Jews in general, right, we're making generalizations, but I think Jews in general highly value education. Um, Jews in general haven't been the greatest athletes of all time, <laughs> um, right? And we're not generally the tallest and the strongest. Um, but there, um, we have done well in school and we have applied ourselves a lot. So this is one way in which, um, you know, a, a part of the community, we're less than 1% of the population of the world. People near this 555 building may not realize that because there's a concentration of Jews in this area mm-hmm. that's very large compared to other areas. But we're less than 1% of the population of the world. So we're a very, very tiny group. Um, and we face discrimination our, our whole history. So one way in which we've been able to um, try to make inroads is by putting a lot of emphasis on education. And in fact, with with my parents, going back to them, um, they really risked their retirement funds on our education. So we could have taken out loans. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the parents who have their kids take out loans. You know, And the cost of tuition has skyrocketed since I Mm -hmm. went to school. I am making no judgments about that. But Mm -hmm. my parents chose to ensure that all of us that did go to graduate schools, colleges and graduate schools, they were fully paid. So my dad worked very, very hard, and my mother did. My mother took care of my two slow learning brothers, all of their economic needs. She absolutely handled through this business. It took care of their health insurance, everything. Mm -hmm. And my father took care of the other six of us through his medical practice. He was a physician. And, um, you know, that's why I graduated. My sister graduated all of this without loans. Um, so it's, that's an extraordinary accomplishment in, in and of itself. Yeah. What age did you decide that you were going to be an attorney? I knew by the time I started college. I had thought I wanted to be a doctor like my dad. Mm-hmm. And my brother Larry became a doctor like my father is. And that, by the way, is something that my father was so proud of. Um, but when I was in high school, I took organic chemistry I, I skipped a year and a half of math. I skipped two years of Spanish, and, and I went through a lot of transition in high school. And one of the things I did along the way was take organic chemistry, which is a college-level course. And probably shouldn't have done that because I was not equipped for organic chemistry. Yeah. Um, all these <laughs> It's good to learn what we're not good at. <laughs> yes. Um, it, well, first of all, um, geography was never a strong suit of mine. Um, my sister's far worse at it, but I, but I'm not particularly <laughs> She'll good appreciate at it. that. <laughs> yeah, well, we it, it's like a family joke, but um, but we're I'm not particularly strong at it, and all these benzene rings. I mean, it's really like 
it, if you are strong in understanding spatial relationships, you have a much greater advantage in organic chemistry and knowing how these rings fit together and, and what they're doing. But I was lost in organic chemistry. So I, and I knew that that was one of the requirements you had to go through organic chemistry to become a doctor. You had to go through these classes. And so I quickly decided that I wasn't going to be a doctor. And my sister was an attorney. She's 16 and a half years older, as I said. So I actually shadowed her. Um, she was in the city, city city solicitor's office. And I shadowed her, saw other lawyers, and I saw um, trial lawyers as well. She was in the appellate department. She was the deputy city solicitor in charge of appeals. Um, but I saw, for instance, Shelley New, who became Judge New. I saw her when she was a spectacular trial lawyer trying um, cases and arguing an appeal. And this kind of thing just... I knew it was for me, and it really was the right fit from day one. Yeah, that's terrific. We're going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with Cheryl Axelrod, president of the Axelrod Firm. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks. And some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your Mutual Fund Store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Hello? Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids' game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow, infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes, Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hearty har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest-growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. 
Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at insourcenow.com to find the quality help you need. When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, wealth management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker, financial advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484-530-2806. Again, that number is 484-530-2806 or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back, everyone, to this week's Women to Watch. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm in the studio today with Cheryl Axelrod. And Cheryl is an attorney here in Philadelphia. She is president of the Axelrod firm, her own law firm here in Philadelphia. And we were learning all about Cheryl's years growing up in Marion, one of eight children. And um, I wanted to ask you about what some of the challenges were that you faced growing up. Um, It's obvious your accomplishments and and you know, you're doing some really wonderful things. But I'm always curious to know what what some of the personal challenges are that you face uh, leading up to your position today. I had great challenges, actually, as a kid. I, um, wow. All right. So there were a number of factors um, that led to those challenges. Number one, um, I had my sister, the oldest of the eight. I adored my family. I talked about how, how I'm very, very close with all of them. My sister had metastatic melanoma, and she was diagnosed with it when she was in college. So I'm 16 and a half years older than her. I think I was about four or five when she first had the diagnosis. So this was extremely rare for somebody that young, and it was a very, very serious diagnosis. My dad sent the films out, uh, the, the um, not films, the the what's it called, where you take the biopsy. Mm-hmm. He took the biopsy, sent it all over the country to the top doctors to look at, and they all came back saying not only is this metastatic melanoma, but they would grade it, you know, one, two, three plus. This was three plus. This was like the worst of the worst. What so, type of uh, doctor was your dad? He was a general practitioner. Okay. He was, a, he was an absolutely fabulous doctor. He was the president of the Philadelphia Family Physicians um, when when he was younger. Um when he saw my sister, Barbara, when she came back from college and she said, Dad, what is this funny thing on my leg? He knew instantly that this was serious and he took her right to the hospital. And 
when my dad would take you right to the hospital, whatever it was, it was serious. He never, <laughs> we were raised you by a doctor. put a Band-Aid on, you're right. fine, you're fine. Exactly. Yeah, when I you mean, have eight kids, everyone's That's right. Fine. Yeah. We're all fine. We were the kids who got the perfect attendance in school letters every single year. <laughs> I went to school with fever, you know, right, all of right. it. So when he took you to the hospital, you had something, mm-hmm. something very serious. So um, he took her right away. And these films were sent all over the country. They all came back saying that this, how serious this was. So I had that going on literally at starting at age four or five. And she had cancer three times. She had two recurrences. Um, I dealt with that. I was dealing with um, I was very close with my grandmother and my mother's mother, who I said was a, an extraordinary woman herself. And, and a big part of the reason that my mom uh, is the person that she is. And my grandmother died when I was in the fifth grade. So um I had some really tough stuff I was dealing with, and I had two slow-learning brothers, which, again, I adore them, but you learn a lot working at living with slow-learning people, and it's not easy. Slow learners, by definition, learn slow. So, for instance, um, I remember being at school and calling my brother Howard and asking him to pick me up from volleyball, and I kept saying to Howard, you're going to remember, right? You'll pick me up. Sure, yes, I will remember. I won't forget, Cheryl. I'll remember, he told me. And I waited for hours, and I was sure he couldn't have forgotten. So I started to get scared, more and more scared. Something must have happened to him. And meanwhile, he had forgotten. And um, there's so many things that you want to uh, tell people and you want to teach people. And um, when you have a slow-learning person, they're going to learn slowly. So you have to spend so much more time. So, you know, these were hard things to deal with, especially when you add into it, again, that Kenny was the first class of special ed kids in Lower Marion, the teasing he went through, Mm -hmm. hearing the words retard, you know, my own siblings. So between all of that, uh, when I was growing up, I was extremely sad. I thought this was moving from elementary school toward really middle school was where the real trouble started. Um, I had a hard time connecting with other kids. I was dealing with some really serious stuff, whereas I felt the other kids were, you know, complaining about not getting the genes that they wanted or, you know, something that I thought was really trivial. And right. and I was dealing with some really hard, hard things. Right. And so I wasn't, you know, I don't know that I was being fair to my other classmates. I don't know that I was giving them the, a chance to really connect with me. I wasn't connecting with them. I didn't think I had any um th- that we had anything in common right um and so i spent a lot of time alone i really put my energies i was a horrible athlete as a kid i became a much better athlete as an adult so when i was a kid i was literally like one of the last kids that would ever get chosen for the baseball game you know for the team um when we did the long jump i mean this could be a movie scene i tripped over the mat and <laughs> And that has stayed with you too. Yes, I can laugh about it now, but it was so embarrassing. And when we did the mile, the run for the mile, I had I was completely clueless about technique. So I did the first lap quickly. I ran out of all steam and was pretty much (laughs) crawling across the finish line at the end. So, um, so really, I uh, on on a very serious note, I thought um, a lot about. I, I, I thought a lot about suicide. I, I wished so many times. I just wished I wouldn't wake up in the morning. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I had and, and this went on for and years. What age was this? This was really junior high 
through to a good couple of years of high school. I would say it's probably covering six to seven years of my life. It was very, very serious. Um, but the reason that I, I lived through this period and didn't commit suicide was because my family loved me. Because, you know, as a result of that, as a result of always knowing that my parents loved me, that my siblings loved me, I also had friends on my street. They, none of them were in my classes in school, but there were three girls. One, uh, two went to private school. One went to the same public school I did, but she was a year younger than I was. Um, we were all friends. So I at least had that support system. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result of it, I I knew I could never kill myself. At, at the very least, even back then, I cared about enough about myself and liked myself enough to never do that to myself. But I did used to spend nights just wishing, you know, please, you know, I just don't want to wake up tomorrow. Please just. And, and was it, would you say it was more depression and sadness as opposed to anxiety? I wondered if, if you were feeling anxious because you lost your grandmother and you had a sister who, you know, was gravely ill. Yeah, I think there were a lot of things that coalesced. So I do think there was definitely a lot of anxiety. Um, there were mixed messages. I don't think my parents meant to do this, but they were telling me and my, my siblings were telling me, your sister's going to be fine. She's going to be fine. But in all of their body language, I knew that she was going to die. Now, she didn't, right? Mm-hmm. But, but at the, time. the odds were overwhelmingly overwhelming that she would. Mm-hmm. And so when they say that kids pick up on things, mm-hmm. I think that's a lot of what we pick up on. When you're a kid, you pick up on body language. So as hard as my parents were trying to convey that my sister's going to be fine, this was an, a brutal experience for these people, right? I mean, this... This was their child and she was going to die. Everybody thought she was. So um, there was no keeping that from me. I I was very well aware that although they're saying one thing, the other thing is true. Right. And that made it actually a lot scarier. Yes. um, Because my parents are extremely honest and decent people. So, um, you know, I think looking back, they were doing this because what do you do with somebody so young? Yes. How do you? But you could tell that they weren't being truthful and then your security is jeopardized. That's right. So I think. There was that factor, which was a huge one. There was losing the support of a grandmother that I adored. I would, my mother had this business. When I would come home from school, my grandmother was there. And then she died when I was in the fifth grade. So she wasn't there to come home to. And mm-hmm. I, I had babysitters and they were lovely people. I, I really liked them, but it was different. It wasn't yeah. the same. Um, so there was that. Um, and then, as I said, the discrimination my, my two brothers were facing. There was all these things and that, I didn't have the social skills at the time to really develop a a network of friends, a group of friends to play with and hang out with at school like I had on my block. Um, I think I was just I was too down as a result of like all these other things going on mm-hmm. to really focus on that and develop that. And if I had, I would have been so much better off. Right. Well, the, the perception is that no one else has any other problems or issues going on, right? And probably if you had learned and, you know, made these friends and formed these relationships and saw that they too, there's always some comfort in that. That's right. And certainly there were plenty of kids going through serious things. I Mm -hmm. wasn't the only one. No, you know, my perception, that's right. My perception that, you know, their biggest problems are that, you know, daddy gave a car or their next door neighbor's dad gave a car to somebody else and not to them. You know, that was completely off. There were, there were kids with very severe issues going on. There was a boy in my neighborhood whose brother committed suicide. I mean, there were definitely serious things all around me. I just yeah. don't think I, I was in too much pain, I guess, to right. really exactly. recognize so it. What, 
what was the turning point for you? Going to you college. To, going to college. Going to Temple. Um, or, I went I'm sorry. To, to Brandeis, Brandeis as an undergrad to yes. Temple Law School. But that was an absolute turning point because, um, first of all, in school, um, I really worked hard and I did very, very well. And the transition from going to, from regular classes to honors classes and from skipping a year and a half of math and two years of Spanish was very, very hard because the kids you're leaving behind resent that you're not in their classes anymore. And the kids whose classes you join, um, they've had longstanding friendships going back years because they've always been in those classes. Nobody does what I did. Nobody transitions from the regular to the honors. That That's just very unusual, let alone to, to skip a year or anything. So um, when I got to college, I was with kids that were okay with where I was intellectually and were interested in studying and were interested in different subjects. And I was with kids like me. So, you know, at Brandeis is full of kids. I, I'm not especially bright. I was with a lot of kids who were bright and interested and interesting um, and enjoyed talking about the kinds of subjects I did. So it was a wonderful experience. My first uh, roommate, my freshman year, and I, uh, we became the best of friends. There were seven other girls on the, on our hall that I guess six other girls on our hall, the eight of us became extremely close friends. We still, now through Facebook, many of us have reconnected. Oh, that's um, great. The boys that we dated were all part of our group. Um, so I definitely felt I had a place where I belonged. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, certainly Excellent. I found out the kinds of things you're talking about, that other people had challenges right, too. Right, right. Um, and so I found a group that I really identified with and cared about. What made you choose at Brandeis University? It's I I wasn't familiar with the school, and um, I'm wondering what how, how, what led you to go there. And you did major in economics. I did. Right? I was an economics major. Um, well, that's interesting because you had, you had mentioned that I'm Jewish, and Brandeis was founded by Jews. It's non-sectarian, and the reason meaning that it's not denominational. It actually has a synagogue, a church, and a I guess it's a, a mosque. There were three. Um, places of religious uh, uh, prayer and temples, and each one was built in Brandeis so that none could cast a shadow on the other. So it's a very progressive, liberal, open-minded school. Mm-hmm. The mantra of the school is truth even into, unto its innermost parts. Um, and one of the things that really appealed to me about it was that it was so progressive and um, people were free to express all sorts of different views. And another reason was, frankly, um, and this is an unwritten story, but um, there is, there had been in the past around World War II, there were quotas. They weren't written down, but there were absolute quotas um, in terms of the, especially the Ivy League schools, how many Jews they would accept. And Brandeis was founded to be the Ivy League school that Jews would be not shut out of, that anybody could get in regardless of their religion. Um, Now, what schools have done to get away from this quota system, uh, but it still works in very much the same way, is you have a large concentration of Jews on the East Coast. One way to ensure that you don't have a large concentration of Jews in the colleges that are the Ivy Leagues is you say, we are going to have geographic diversity. Now, that sounds really good, and there are some good things about it, but it is, in a way, a code word for we are not going to have a large concentration of Jews in our schools. So schools have um, become more diverse. I did not get into Penn. Um, I did see that there were students that weren't Jewish that I thought I had equal 
grades and, and um, SAT scores, too, that did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying they d- didn't let me in because I'm a Jew, but I am saying that these things are factoring in. So in any event, I went to Brandeis. I felt I got a great education. I studied economics mainly because it was the hardest um, subject. It was the hardest major to major in. The lowest grades came out of it. And that's crazy. That's not a great reason to study anything. But I wanted to prove to myself I was smart. I had, um, I think I had a chip on my shoulder. Uh, was I like more like my slow learning brothers or was I more like my sister who was a lawyer, oh, my brother who's a doctor, yeah, the yeah. brothers who are engineers? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's an embarrassing thing to say, but but that's the truth. That's why yeah. I did it. And looking back, I'm very glad I studied economics. It's, it's served me incredibly well. Yeah. Um, we're going to take one last quick break and we will be back with Cheryl Axelrod. Hello? Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids' game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow, infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes. Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hearty har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest-growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks, and some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your Mutual Fund Store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. 
To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, wealth management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker, financial advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484-530-2806. Again, that number is 484-530-2806. Or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC. Member NYSE, FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch. I'm in the studio today with Cheryl Axelrod, and Cheryl is the president of the Axelrod Firm, a law firm uh, here in Philadelphia. And uh, before the break, we were talking all about her background growing up in Marion. And I wanted to ask Cheryl about an organization that she is a member of, and the name of the organization is the National Association of Minority and Women-Owned Law Firms. Why don't you talk for a few minutes about the organization, Cheryl? Thank you very much for asking. So NAMWOLF, that's the acronym for that, is not just made up of women and minority-owned firms. It is made up of the best of the best women and minority-owned firms. And we know that because of the rigorous qualifications we have to go through to become members. You have to have a minimum of three Fortune 500 companies or their equivalently large governmental or nonprofit entities to become a member of NAMWOLF. And on average, all of the attorneys in your firm have to be rated AV preeminent, which is the top rating attorneys can get in the legal profession. They're rated by a source called Martindale Hubble, which is a nationally recognized rating source for lawyers. So these are the best of the best. And the reason that NAMWOLF has these rigorous screening requirements is the top Fortune 500 companies in the country want to do business with women and minority-owned firms. And they want to know that they're doing high uh, business with high-quality attorneys. So there are about 115 NAMWOLF members all across the country. And the top Fortune 500 companies and the largest governmental and nonprofit entities come to our meetings to meet with us and do business with us. And NAMWOLF is very interested in diversity. It's one of its core values. And these companies likewise feel the same. That's why they want to work with us. So it's absolutely a wonderful partnership that we have developed through NAMWOLF. Yeah, and you know what? You should be proud that you're you're one of a few select to, to be a member. Um, you know, you mentioned diversity, and something that was so fascinating to me is some of the research uh, that you've been doing and the statistics that you've come up with regarding profitability of diversity. And uh, I, don't, I don't know that it's something a lot of people are aware of. We talk a lot about um, inclusion and initiatives for diversity, but talk a little bit about the, the facts of why it's profitable. Yeah, it's amazing. So if you add three or more women to a corporate board, and the reason I use that language, add, is most corporate boards are all men. Lots and lots of corporate boards are all men. But where you start to add, and you just add three or more women to a corporate board, your profits will go up 60 to 84%. These numbers are absolutely stunning. 
In fact, the positive influence of female board members is so strong that if you look at the Fortune 500 companies, I mentioned them, the Fortune 500 companies refer to the companies with the greatest amount of revenues, the 500 top ones in the entire country. If you look at them, the amount of women on the corporate boards of the top of the top of them, which are the Fortune 100s, they're the tippy top best, most um, highly productive companies. They have the most women on their boards. They've got 18%, nearly one in five. They could do much better, right? You could have more than one in five women on the boards. You could have 50, 50%. But what we already see is they have the most. If you go to the top 200, they're performing slightly worse than the top 100, still performing incredibly well. They have 16.7% um, women on their boards. In other words, 16.7% of the board members are women. If you look at the top 300, performing slightly worse than the top 200, they have slightly less women. 14.9% of their board members are women. So there's a direct relationship between the profitability of companies and the amount of women on their boards. I would also add, I'm very interested in diversity broadly, not just among women, that the most racially diverse companies bring in nearly 15 times greater revenues than the least racially diverse, and that we find that racial diversity is a greater determinant of sales revenue and company and customer numbers than the size of the company, the age of the company, or the number of employees at a work site. It is a highly profitable enterprise for companies to begin to be more diverse and inclusive. And quick reason why, the why is because when you have a diverse group, you avoid groupthink. When you have what's called a, a similar group, it's called homogenous, where you have a homogenous group, a very similar group, you find people get stuck in thinking the same way. They get stuck in groupthink. And then you have all sorts of problems where you have a diverse group with different perspectives that they bring to the table. You find great profits, great innovation, um, and great results. You know, you just a answered my, my next question was going to be, you know, aside from the numbers and the statistics was, why do you think that is? And I, and I would say, you know, not having any background in, in the research that you've done that, you know, having these diverse ideas leads to innovation, which is so key today for businesses, um, having to find ways to be different from all their competitors. Absolutely. And I'll just add that while I'm talking about women and people of color when I was talking about racial diversity, that other minorities, data is showing us, bring these same qualities too because they come with a different perspective as well. So when you look, for instance, at IBM, IBM made strategic task forces of women, people of color, people from South America. They had all sorts of task forces. One of their task forces was the People with Disabilities Task Force. They are expected to make the most profits for the company of any of them. All the other task forces are, were looking at hundreds of millions of dollars, not no small chunk change here. But the People with Disabilities Task Force is expected to bring in a billion dollars in, task, in profits. So uh, diversity itself is highly profitable and companies should really be thinking about including more women, including more minorities, and by minorities, not just people of color. Yes, people of color, also people with disabilities, also LGBTs, also people that are transgender, also people from different religions, people from different ethnic backgrounds, all sorts of diversity, because the more they diversify, the better they will do. And, and I think we should point out, it's it, while it's important, you're still looking for the, um, the most um, experienced for that field. In other words, diversity is going to be great because it brings new ideas, but you're not doing it just for the sake of diversity. Absolutely. There's right. no question that we're not talking about um, lowering standards or quality in any way, shape, or form. 
And it's important to get across that talent, intelligence, drive, ambition. There is no group that has a lock on these things. Right. They're equally dispersed among all groups. So it is important to try to get the best of the best talent. And that means if you're an organization and you're looking at it and all the people at the top look alike, they're all white men or they're all white women or they're all African-American men or African-American women or Hispanic, you don't have the best of the best talent because right. by definition, you can't. The best of the best talent is diverse. Right. It comes from all backgrounds equally. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the organization um, supportive of what we're talking about that you decided to form called Fearless Women Network. What's that all about? Thanks for asking. So Marianne Mullaney, who is a partner at Blank Row, one of the 100 largest law firms in the country and where I came from, and I founded the Fearless Women Network. And the Fearless Women Network is about shattering glass ceilings and obliterating unequal pay. And we're not just talking about for women, although women is in the name of our organization. It is also about um, minorities. So what we are trying to do is um, make sure that women and minorities are fairly compensated, that we are trying to raise awareness about our disenfranchisement and creating, we are trying to work on creating solutions so that we reach equality. We are actually having a symposium on April 24th. The symposium is on the pay gap in the legal profession. What do I mean? Women and minorities are not being equally paid as compared to white men in the legal profession. We're actually doing worse than we are in the rest of the country. You've probably heard that women make 77 cents to every dollar men do. Minority women do worse than that. In the legal profession, we actually do even worse than that. So what we are trying to do, we're holding a symposium. We have top-notch level speakers who are highly versed in this subject. We are going to have a panel of special speakers. I'm one of them. I'm going to be talking about the profitability of diversity. We are going to have a panel of judges, and we are going to have a panel of in-house lawyers. In-house lawyers are lawyers within companies. And each of these panels um, and speakers will be talking about how to get to greater diversity, inclusion, and equality in the legal profession. I think that's fantastic. You know, and, and again, the more things are brought to light and discussed and, you know, work towards as a group, you know, the closer we'll come to doing it. Um, you know, before, I, I wouldn't want to end the interview with not uh, giving you an opportunity to talk to me about your firm and how you're different from other law firms and what it is that you focus on. Thank you. So the Axelrod firm, my law firm, is a four-attorney law firm here in Philadelphia. We practice in Pennsylvania and in New Jersey. What I do, and it fits in beautifully with my passion for diversity and inclusion, a lot of what I do is employment work. I um, defend companies in employment matters. And in other words, if I keep my clients as diverse and inclusive as possible, I minimize their exposure to claims. So I get to exercise my passion for diversity, inclusion, and equality by keeping companies as diverse and inclusive and um, treating their employees equal as possible. And that's why, for instance, one of my big clients is the Salvation Army. And um, yes, you've heard about the hor uh, very sad, um, tragic building collapse um, in Center City. My firm does not do work related to um, keeping the properties uh, physically secure, but you have not heard news of major employment discrimination cases in this area in at least seven years, and that's as long as I've been representing them because we work very, very hard to keep 
them as open and inclusive and diverse as possible, and they do a great job. They always um, take our advice, so they do great a great job with that. We also defend them in their um, companies, in their personal inju injury work. We handle commercial matters, and um, we handle appellate cases. Um, I mentioned that we're members of NAMWOL, so through those qualifications that I discussed, we meet all those qualifications. We are rated AV, preeminent, the top rating. We have three or more Fortune 500 companies that are equivalently large governmental or nonprofit entities as clients. In fact, through NAMWOLF, my firm has even grown our client base. So through NAMWOLF, we became uh, counsel to GlaxoSmithKline and Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. So I'm very proud of that. And those companies are to be commended for building relationships with my firm and firms like mine. Um, so we're uh, a small firm with four lawyers, but we handle very large matters. Um, in fact, uh, that's why companies come to us is for large exposure cases and potentially large exposure cases. And with regard to the employment discrimination work to make sure that they don't have large exposure cases and keep those to a minimum. Because um, if you look in the news anytime, you may see other companies with huge employment discrimination problems and claims all across the country. If we do our jobs as well as we have in the past, um, you know, knock on wood, we'll, we'll avoid that happening for our clients. Yeah, that's really important. So you're actually, you know, you're, you're doing preventative, teaching preventative steps to businesses to avoid that kind of a thing. That's right. And we do the same with our personal injury defense work in keeping companies um, as, um, keeping our company's maintenance records as good as possible, making sure that they're doing proper maintenance of their facilities, making sure that they have in place the proper policies and procedures that minimize the risk of anyone ever getting hurt in any of their facilities, we keep their exposure to a minimum that way as well. Yeah, that's wonderful. You know, it's it's been a great conversation, and I will have to have you back again because, um, you know, there's a lot of topics we didn't even get to. So um, for the listeners, um, take a few minutes and give your contact information for anyone who might want to speak to you on any of the matters. Thank you so much for asking. So to reach me, the one of the easiest ways is to go to my website. So it's www. and then the, like the word the, Axelrod, which is my last name, which is like car parts, Axel and Rod, A-X-E-L-R-O-D, um, firm, like a law firm, F-I-R-M dot com. So the Axelrod firm dot com. Yeah, all my contact information is there. My email address is S for Cheryl, then Axelrod again, like car parts, Axel and Rod, A-X-E-L-R-O-D, at, with the at sign, the Axelrod firm dot com. My telephone number is 215-461-1768. And I would love to hear from you. Um, and I'll add, if any of the listeners out there comes across an important um, article, um, video, any kind of presentation that deals with inclusion, diversity, diversity, inclusion, and equality, um, something at a high level, I'm always interested in reading that kind of thing, and I would welcome it from you. Terrific. Cheryl, thank you so much for coming in today and, and sharing your story and, and the good work that you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on this fabulous program. I appreciate that. Thank you. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. If you have any questions for me or any of my guests, feel free to uh, reach out to me at my website, womentowatch.net, and that's with the number two. Make it a great week, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.